to the 419th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome poet Kathleen Ossip, author of the recent book, July, which was an NPR best book of 2021. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. This is a special COVID Calls at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. As always, please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is Lata Mangeshkar, playback singer whose voice featured, whose voice featured in Bollywood films. This appeared in iNews. February 17th, 2022, by Izin Akabao. Ata Mangeshkar, who has died at the age of 92 from multiple organ failure after contracting COVID-19, was an award-winning Indian singer whose voice was much admired. In a career that lasted 73 years, she performed across the world in venues as prestigious as London's Royal Albert Hall. Her voice could be heard both on the radio in India and playing in diaspora homes in the UK. The artist, known in the homelands as the Nightingale, sang more than 15,000 songs in 36 different languages, romantic ballads, patriotic songs, pious songs, and songs about grief. However, she drew the line at racy songs because of her moral beliefs. Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi led the tributes to Magashkar saying, the coming generations will remember her as a stalwart of Indian culture, whose melodious voice had an unparalleled ability to mesmerize people. Mangeshkar was born in 1929 in the city of Indore, the capital of the princely state of Indore, which was part of the central India agency in British India. She was the eldest child of Pandit Dinanth, a musician, and his second wife, Shivanti. From as young as four or five years old, Mangeshkar would perform in her father's plays and concerts. Her father died of heart problems when she was only 13. Thanks to a family friend, she was able to support her family by taking on small acting roles in his film company, but she did not enjoy the industry. My heart wasn't into acting at all, she later explained. I hated applying makeup, especially lipstick. Since films were in black and white then, a heavy coat of lipstick had to be applied. Ever since I stopped acting, I have never used lipstick again, she said. Her breakout song was Ayega Anawala, which she recorded in 1949 and was featured in the film Mahal. For decades, she was in high demand as a playback singer, one of the musicians whose vocals were used in Bollywood films as actors lip-synced. During her career, Mangeshkar won several Filmfare Awards, which celebrate the best in Hindi film for best playback singer. Notably, she spoke up for playback singers to be recognized in film credits and fairly compensated. Khalid Mohammed, a journalist, once asked her if she'd been nervous about making this request. She told him, do I seem shy to you? When we sing for the heroine and the hero, why should their characters' names be mentioned instead of ours? In 2001, Magashkar was awarded India's highest civilian honor, the Bharat Ratna. She also had a brief political career from November 1999 until November of 2005, when she served in the upper house in the Indian parliament. She said that she admired the Beatles and the songs of Julie Andrews in The Sound of Music. Mangeshkar is survived by her siblings Meena, Asha, Usha, and Priyantinath. life of Lata Mangeshkar, who died at age 92 from COVID-19 complications.
Okay, I'd like to turn to conversation for today and let me introduce my guest to you, Kathleen Ossip. Kathleen Ossip's most recent book of poems, July, was one of NPR's best books of 2021. She's also the author of The Do-Over, which was a New York Times editor's choice, The Cold War, which was one of Publishers Weekly's best books of 2011, also The Search Engine, selected by Derek Walcott for the American Poetry Review Honickman First Book Prize. She's also the author of Cinephrastics, a chapbook of movie poems. Her poems have appeared widely in such publications as The Washington Post, The Best American Poetry, Best American Magazine Writing, New York Review of Books, The Nation, The New Republic, The Believer, Poetry, and Paris Review, among many other venues. She's received a fellowship from the New York Foundation for the Arts and has been a fellow at the Harvard Radcliffe Institute, and she teaches at the New School and at Princeton University. Kathleen Ossip, it's great to meet you. Thank you for coming on COVID Calls. Well, thank you for inviting me here, Scott. I'm delighted to be here. I thought it was interesting that you said this is a podcast where you talk to disaster experts because I don't consider myself an expert in the pandemic at all. But as you were talking, I was thinking, well, given that poets kind of have to grapple with the extremes of feeling and experience in some way, maybe a poet is, is a disaster expert. Uh, it's it's a term, you're not the, thank you for that. You're not the first person who's kind of said, wait a minute, I, why is he <laughs> des describing me this way? I take a very stretchy, view of what it means to have expertise. I mean, I, I guess during this time, I could talk to anybody and they would fit the bill as a disaster expert. And it's not an expertise that any of us would have wanted, is it? No, absolutely not. Um, but it's something that has now become part of our just uh, bedrock of experience and our nervous systems. I feel I was talking to someone the other day about how we can't really remember <laughs> what it was like to not be living under these conditions. And I, I find myself imposing these conditions on memories from before the pandemic started when I play them back in my mind. There's so many aspects to that. I've, you know, watching, um, I was thinking of the obituary I just read and um, the way that um, filmmakers now or, you know, they're not using masks, obviously, in the films. And I'm wondering which ones will actually do that, commercials, other kinds of um, cultural reference points that people, even a few years from now, might look back and say, what was that pandemic again? It it might disappear a bit from some of the visual culture, but I don't think it will disappear at all from the literary culture. No, I think you're going to see a lot of pandemic novels and pandemic books coming out in the next couple of years. Oh, Kathleen, let me ask you, um, I usually start just by finding out where people are and, and what the pandemic situation looks like there. So let me ask you the same thing. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from my house, which is in a little town called Hastings on Hudson, New York. It's just about 10 miles north of the Bronx. So just outside of New York City. And how are things looking there now? Has the Omicron wave broken at this point? I can't give you the statistics, but I know how it feels. And it definitely feels like we're on the verge of having a much freer life. Um, but I have felt like that before. So I'm, you know, not counting on anything. I remember back when the... Um, Vaccines became available in, I guess, um, like March, April, 2021. Mm -hmm. And I finally got my two-part Pfizer vaccine in April. And I felt so free. Went to museums, got my hair cut for the first time in a year and a half, and um, just felt very free to socialize in a way I hadn't for a while. And then... I, I feel like that lasted for about six weeks. And then um, and then I think it was Delta at that point reared its head. You know, you are the third person I've talked to this week who has this, this moment in time in the United States has triggered that exact similar chain of memories, which oh, yeah. is the um, kind of exuberance to a certain degree 
a, a, a sense of freedom in the late spring of 2021. And then obviously Delta, you know, put a stop to that yes. uh, for people. And then in this moment to be a little bit hesitant about rushing back outside. Or just even letting myself feel, uh, feel happy about it. I'm very wary that it's it's not necessarily um, <clears throat> going to be as smooth a transition as I would like it to be. I wonder how people um, are recording if they're if they're trying to those emotional oscillations. I mean, I don't want to put too much uh, on the poet, but it is one of the things that we look to writers to do for us and with us, isn't it? I mean, to sort of capture those smaller fluctuations that ultimately people will say, well, that was the pandemic. I, it was a terrible time and I moved through it, but it's been going at this point that it has its own emotional landscape and its own sort of emotional vibrations. Yes. Well, one of the things that I, um, that having all this time at home has done is that I, I may, I've been able to like revisit things that I worked on and never quite completed or set aside because I didn't know what to do with them. And um, just yesterday, or for the past couple of days, I I was looking at a poem that I wrote before or drafted before the pandemic, never really felt completely satisfied with it. I went back to it within earlier this week, and I had to rewrite the whole thing because I no longer recognized the person who wrote that poem or the feelings that were in that poem. That's really interesting. I mean, um, I'm going to ask you questions about your writing and um, and we're going to have an opportunity for you to read some as well. But I hadn't thought about, of course, it makes sense for any author um, or artist of any type and certainly for academics. We have a, a file after file of unfinished product products, projects that are moving along. And to pick them back up, particularly if they were sitting a little while before 2020, can be jarring. I think I've certainly found older things. I mean, I write about disasters. And so stuff that I was in the middle of writing in March of 2020 was mooted. I mean, I had to sort of start again on a couple of things, honestly. Yes. Yeah. More there, there were more urgent disasters calling for your attention. So um, let me just, before we get into some of the poetry that you've created in this time, let's just ask you a little bit about your, your work before the pandemic. Um, I mean, it's kind of an origin story question, but I'm interested to know how you got started writing and, and then how you, you know, really found the, the courage, the gumption to start putting yourself out there as a, as a poet, um, published and reading in the world. Um, I think, I mean, I think my story is a little unusual in that although I was, very much a bookworm when I was a kid and constantly reading in love with books. Um, and I used to write stories when I was a kid. I really didn't have much of a relationship with poetry beyond maybe nursery rhymes and Dr. Seuss. There wasn't a lot of poetry taught to me in school or a lot of poetry lying around our house. So I, I and I didn't study poetry in college at all. Um, so it wasn't until after I graduated from college and began working in publishing in New York City that I came to poetry. And I came to poetry because I was so unhappy with my job um, in publishing, which sounded like an ideal kind of place for me to work, a publishing company, books, you know, but it's also, publishing is also a business and was becoming much more corporatized at the time I started working in publishing. And I, um, I just was unhappy. I felt that I wanted to live a more creative life and just didn't have any idea how. I, I'd never known anyone who was a writer. I, I just, yeah, I didn't know how to go about that, but I found myself getting attracted to poetry. Like I would go into a bookstore and find myself in the poetry section. Same with libraries. I'd come home with 
arms full of um, poetry books. And finally, you know, if you read enough poetry, you kind of get to the point where you say, oh, well, I can do that too. And that, you know, point came to me, to me after a while. And I um, pursued a graduate degree in creative writing and then just took it from there. Who were you reading in those visits to bookstores in the lunch hour in New York City, which I can totally picture having lived and worked in New York myself? Uh, anyone and everyone. I, in a way, I'm very glad that I wasn't, that I didn't become a reader of poetry under the direction of um, a teacher, because mm. as a result, I think I have very wide ranging tastes and I, I, was very undiscriminating. <laughs> and uh, I sometimes say that I'm a po poetry glutton. I want it all. And I kind of devoured it all at that point. But one thing, one, one kind of poetry I did discover, which is a little embarrassing because I think most um, poetry readers, especially uh, young women poetry readers discover um, Sylvia Plath and Anne mm -hmm. Sexton like when they're teenagers. But mm -hmm. for me, it took a little while longer. They, I still love their poetry and consider them influences. The just thank you for this conversation about New York too, because um, I miss New York. And uh, you know, when I lived there, and I guess people still have this experience, although I wonder how the pandemic has shaped it. Um, and I always read poetry from a young age and um, being in New York was a different kind of experience because on the subway it was the advertisements, shards of ripped paper everywhere. You know, um, and maybe I'm kind of describing like a Bob Dylan, you know, blowing in the wind kind of moment, but I mean, there's, there's words around you all the time and overheard conversations and music coming out, leaking out of someone's headphones. So even if you have a train of thought that you're working on, other inputs are coming. And if you're attentive to words, they, they group themselves often. And, and so it, there was a lot of found poetry in New York for me. I used to write it down and very excitedly share it with people who usually said, nah, all right, it's, it's New York. What do you expect? But I always got very excited by that. Yes, I, I love using environmental language in my poems and and working in a very collagey leapy way but as i'm thinking about the poems that i kind of gathered for our conversation not so much and i think that that maybe has to do with the conditions under which they were written the all of the poetry that i sent to you and that i kind of be reading was written during the pandemic and I wasn't so much in around a lot of people. I I I have been extremely cautious about COVID. So I really confined myself to my house and maybe the supermarket and a daily walk for the first six months probably. And those conditions made for kind of um a lot of compression in my poems and a more singular voice, singular meaning just, you know, kind of the voice of the speaker, my interior mm -hmm. voice maybe, uh, than, I, than I had been used to uh, working with in my poems where I did like to put a lot of different voices into the mix. Let me just remind folks that you're listening to COVID Calls and I'm talking today to poet Kathleen Ossip and we're just talking about um, how the environmental shift, if you will, of the pandemic maybe had an impact on the themes you were writing about and the language that you were using. Um, since you offered, and it's such a kind offer to read a bit today, I'd, I'd love to take you up on that. And um, maybe we can start with one of the poems that is about that issue of interiors and just being inside or, or being outside for short gasps of time and coming back inside. And, and you have a number of poems that, that touch on that. Um, we could start wherever you want to. I mean, I really like, well, I like them all, but Living Room, I think particularly speaks to that and Puzzle Piece. Yes, okay. I can read both of those. Um, yeah, I noticed as I was gathering these poems that there are a lot of rooms in these poems and that's basically 
Um, I now know what it's like to be confined to a room uh, much more than I had that sensation before. Um, so this is living room. I wrote it in my living room about an image that I saw in my living room, uh, which was uh, there was a square of like a sunbeam on on the wall and the shadows of a rose bush within the sunbeam. I'm going to let you read and I'll just get out of the way so the audience knows this is Kathleen Ossip reading her new work, new poetry called Living Room. Okay. Living Room. Square of sun engraved on the gold tone wall, within shadow of thorn branch. The lengthened leaves agitate, constrained hands flapping. The leaf shadows twist like victims. They aren't victims. I have a body not shown here. You have a body and may see such things one day. Um, just want to say, it's funny, as I'm reading it, I just am thrown back to that time and I see all kinds of things that maybe wouldn't be apparent, which is the preoccupation with bodies, which I think we all were, especially at the beginning, preoccupied with keeping our bodies safe. And um, the line, I have a body not shown here, I think I was felt, must have felt pretty unseen being confined to my house. Yeah, the, that's this turn in the middle that really kind of makes me slip straight about the, the leaf shadows twist like victims and they aren't victims. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's really arresting because I think I certainly, I hadn't thought about it this way until I read that. Um, and it's great to hear you read it. Looking to nature, in the pandemic, because we had those of us who had who didn't have to work at the front lines or take the pick up trash or do other essential work in the middle of this pandemic, who were home a lot, and I think I was looking for meaning in nature and patterns. I guess we all probably do that in different ways, but this idea that you were seeing something in in the leaves that conjured a kind of violence to you, but but then you'd say it isn't. Yeah, I think I was unconsciously at least aware that there were lots of true victims going through, you know, a lot of pain out in the world and that I guess somehow they're a little bit in the poem, even in that negating kind of way. Um, the uh, uh, Speaking of the nature angle, yes, I felt very much more intimate with nature at because at the time like the highlight one of the highlights of my days was taking my daily walk and there's a um there's an aqueduct an old obsolete aqueduct at the like about a half a block from my house and um i would walk on it every day and uh somehow a memory that i had which is going to be the first part of this next poem I'll read called Stones. Um, I was reminded of this incident that happened, which is about stones. And um, I started noticing all the different kinds of stones on this path that I walked on every day. So this is Stones. A group of women I'm a part of had a falling out or a falling apart about whether stones and rocks are alive. One woman passionately argued that they were. Others counter-argued with biological facts like breath, growth, movement, reproduction. So passionate was the woman who believed stones were alive that she left the group in anger. On leaving, she told us that her beliefs were religious and based on Native American traditions that everything on earth is alive. There is no hierarchy of being. Today, walking on the obsolete aqueduct, I met all kinds of rocks and stones. Some were embedded into the dry soil, polished by footsteps, revealing only their flat, satin faces. Others were more petite, round, loose, and whimsical. Some were tiny, where does gravel end and pebble begin? Their colors and shapes were various. All seemed interesting and individual. 
each completely filled the outlines of its spirit. I've noticed that debates rarely come to any conclusion. Instead, they make the outlines of division more definite and fixed. However, they are perhaps inescapable pitfalls of being alive, or at least being human. I can imagine an existence where semantic arguments, all arguments are semantic, didn't occupy such a central, irritating spot where the work of soothing others was paramount. I need all the friends I can get, happy to count stones among them. Just a quick reminder, you're watching COVID Calls, and that's Kathleen Ossop reading a new work titled Stones, which was written in the pandemic. And Kathleen, is this published yet? It, um, it was published in a journal called the Bennington Review. It is not public. It may be online under at their website. I'm not sure. Uh, but all of these poems that I'm reading today are about to be published or later on in this year will be published in book form in a in a book called Little Poems. Okay. Uh, so this one. Um, so we've got conflict here among friends, yes. uh, which is what a, such a theme of this time. People who didn't know they had things to disagree about all of a sudden found some, didn't they? Yes, absolutely. And, and the arguments are kind of at such a fundamental level of existence and our understanding of existence and being that it, it, it does seem that there is no possibility of reconciliation. And in this case that I'm talking about in the, in the poem, there wasn't, you know, there were just, um, the disagreements were so fundamental that there couldn't be any kind of coming together. And we, yes, have certainly seen a lot of that in the past two years. One of the things that um, this poem really got me thinking about was the ways in which, you know, as we were just talking about a sort of a, in the lockdown phase, particularly a sort of a retreat from kind of normal interactions and, and even people who didn't make that retreat also had a shift in what their normal interactions were looking like. The places you normally go on a daily basis were closed. Um, and, and so you might think that that would lead to a diminution of conflict. No. And yet people found surprising new ways and new opportunities and venues, um, maybe not in those first few months, but not long after, uh, to look for for places to have dispute and and argument. And and you I mean, I really like the the line where you you talk about walking on the obsolete aqueduct and you met all kinds of rocks and stones, which you take you'll take them as your as your companions and friends. So um, there's a, to me, there's a sort of sense of this, maybe the hope of a kind of a retreat to a more quiet space to get away from what's happening out there. But you don't necessarily find that relief in this poem. No, and I think um, that last line, I need all the friends I can get happy to count stones among them must have come from a certain loneliness that um, the lack of socializing opportunities created in many of us. I mean, Zoom is great. Thank goodness for Zoom. Um, as a teacher, I can say that and just as someone who wanted to stay connected to their friends and family, but it wasn't and isn't the same, is it? So let's talk a little bit about sociability at home. Um, maybe uh, people we do get along with uh, a little bit more. We don't look for a, a fight with them. Can we talk about a, a couple of these? You have, um, I think, the, the a poem, um, Puzzle Piece, and then also Marriage. Maybe could you read those two, and then we'll talk a little bit about them? Yes. Yeah, so like many, so um, during the pandemic, at first it was my spouse, my husband, Robert, and me at home together, um, no one else. And then uh, I think it was August of 2020, our daughter, who had just graduated from college, joined us back at home. Mm -hmm. She was not very happy to be back at home. This, that was not the post-college life she had imagined for herself. Mm 
Um, and I saw that so much in my students too. I teach at um, a couple of universities and I saw too that they were just really struggling. Um, it's it was bad for everyone, um, but I found that young people just, uh, the, the lack of the socializing, the lack of, you know, the structure that sh they had counted on to kind of launch from was ripped from them and they were just struggling. So anyway, there we were, our little family um, in the winter of 2020 through 2021. And we did everything to avoid doing uh, jigsaw puzzles. We did crossword <laughs> puzzles, we played board games, but I'm not much of a, a, a jigsaw puzzle doer, but finally we had to, we resorted to doing a thousand piece puzzle. Never finished, I will add. And um, I wrote this poem about a puzzle piece who I, who I proceeded to sort of um, personify and gender as um, female. So, puzzle piece. She scrapes at first against the edge of her neighbor. Her color is tested. If right, she is swallowed by her role in the big picture, a plebeian necessity not applauded. If wrong, she is flipped onto a breath-held pile of postponements, pitched aside for her outlandish shape. If the last, she endures the lot of the fetish, princess for a centisecond, then ignored once completion is had. Small wonder that she sometimes craftily finds another box, sparing herself the losing face of fitting in. Just a quick reminder to folks that you're listening to Kathleen Ossup reading her new poetry, and that one is Puzzle Piece, which you said is um, connected to, there's a lot happening here in, in this one, um, but it's in some ways connected to the, uh, the activity of last resort at your house after you'd gone through everything else. Is there a particular reason for that? Why it was a last resort? Yeah. Um, uh, too much work, I think. <laughs> yeah, I think that was it. I None of us are really big jigsaw puzzle doers. It's nothing that we would, um, that we would take out and do in ordinary times. But, you know, boredom pushes people to do unusual things. Um, There's... Um... You know, I, I hope it's not irritating. I'm finding things in here that resonate for me. I know they may not be what you intend either, but so, but I, I can't help um, since I have this chance to talk with you one on one. The the line in there about disappearing disappearing into the big picture. Yeah. Um, it evokes also so many of those. Um, I don't know when you wrote this, but so many of those um, newspapers were doing these. It, you know, obituary runs, and I've been reading a lot of obituaries during this time where you see the one and then they would have the one face and then it, and then a lot of faces. And the New York mm -hmm. Times did that and it immediately conjured that for me, this sort of one one person in this sort of much bigger picture of this tragedy unfolding, which is now an order of magnitude bigger than it was then. Yes, and I I think that is in there. And I also think just the feeling unseen was part of it. And also I think consciously what I had in mind anyway was um, it's a bit of a feminist poem, thus the gendering of the puzzle piece as she and, and the way in which, you know, whatever this particular puzzle piece, whether it's the, it's the one the puzzle doer is looking for or the last one or not, fitting in at all, she really can't seem to be perfect enough. 
So we'll just want to come back. There's another one that um, it's a short one, um, but it's also about being home and being, I don't want to give too much of a setup. Maybe you just read it and we can talk a little bit. I about mean, the poem to. itself is the setup. I, it, it speaks for itself, I think, but um, yes, it's very short and it's called marriage, but it could be called pandemic marriage. Um, so much for the fighting and the sex. I want to be alone with you in the next room. So yeah, anytime you're living with someone in confined quarters with nowhere to go, like tempers are gonna get a little frayed sometimes. And um, we found that to be true, but I also realized that I was very lucky to have someone um, as a companion during that time. And, and I wouldn't want, wouldn't have wanted him to be gone, but maybe just sometimes in the next room. <laughs> are you used to writing in a completely empty space, like a, an empty house, or are you used to writing, you know, but pre pandemic, are you mm -hmm. used to writing with other people in the space? And I asked that because writers have their, have their ways. Yes. And uh, sometimes those ways become more than just a habit, they become part of the practice itself. And so that could be disrupted during the pandemic. Yeah, I didn't find it so much to be true, so much of a disruption, because yes, I do have my ways. Um, but there's usually a room I can go into and be by myself. Um, this room that I'm talking to you from is my office, but I'm I wish I were disciplined enough to write poems in, in this office, but I mostly end up writing poems in bed, <laughs> sitting on my bed. And that's mm. that's what I did during the pandemic too. Yeah. So being alone, but having someone in the next room was okay. It was okay. It was necessary, I think. I think being completely alone, all, as some people were, um, would be very difficult. I found a yeah. kind of new way of working. Did you? Yeah, I mean, just that, and this is the total privilege of of academic time, yes. um, which is that a lot of my writing I would do um, when kids would go to school. I could never write at the office. It had to be at home. And when kids go to school and spouses at, at work, so I'm at work and I'm in this quiet house. And, and again, some of the earlier things you were reading, um, certain shadows with sun is in a certain place in the house, certain kind of stillness or something going on next door. So these signals, it's like, it's time to write because this is what's happening. The stage is set, but it was, those were times when I was alone in that space. And then once we're all home in March of 2020. Yes. And now it's two different rooms are schools. Another room is my spouse working and I'm in this other room. It's like we were running a call center at our house. And those ambient sounds were fine, but it took me a little getting used to, to work with them happening just outside the door. Yeah, I, I'm very aware that I did not have, um, that my circumstances were quite comfortable. And I know I thought I have friends who had younger kids and um, my neighbors we're all of a sudden in their houses with kids and working and trying to juggle all of that. It's completely impossible. And um, I, I do feel lucky that that wasn't um, the, I didn't have those challenges because I'm not sure how well I would have risen to the occasion. So let's talk a little bit about interactions uh, as a teacher and interactions with other writers, there's one um, that calls back to something we were getting into a little bit earlier about work that was unfinished from before the pandemic. And you have one piece that you shared with me that you had started before the pandemic and then you picked it back up again uh, and it took a different turn. And that's one you had used in a writing exercise, I think you shared with me, yeah. Henry Hudson. Yes. Maybe we can talk about that. And then there's um, there's three poems that you shared that were part of online interactions with other writers. And so I'd like to hear a little bit about that as well, if you don't mind. Sure. 
So, yes, Henry Hudson began probably around five years ago. Um, so the town I live in is on the Hudson River. And I taught for a while at a place called the Hudson Valley Writers Center, which is like 20 minutes from my house, and which also over had a beautiful panoramic view of the Hudson River. And um, one night I was teaching a class there, or yeah, late afternoon, evening, I was teaching a class there and I gave my students the, the writing exercise to write about the room we were in, which is beautiful. Um, uh, it's in an old train station, um, arts and craft style train station um, with lots of vintage woodwork, just beautiful place. Um, but I gave them like a, a long time to write about their surroundings because I wanted to force them to notice things they wouldn't ordinarily notice. So I don't remember how long it was, half hour, 45 minutes. Um, I had them sit and write about what they saw in their surroundings. And I don't usually do my own exercises, but I guess this was such a long ch chunk of time that we were just sitting there at the table with the students writing. I, I did it too. So I, you know, wrote, wrote all these notes and um, didn't really think that much of it and put it away in some notebook. Uh, dur during the pandemic, I had time to revisit <clears throat> old notebooks and I found... I can't even call it a draft. It was just notes about the this room that we were all in. And thought, I guess I saw something in it and decided to uh, see what I could do if I could make a finished poem of it. And that's that's how Henry Hudson came about. Henry Hudson. Wood is a masculine substance. Witness the arts and crafts movement the men at the helm of it. Witness, for that matter, this room. Oak floor, oak walls, oaken ceiling. The air-conditioning grate, ersatz oak. The slats of the ceiling fan, oak veneer. The table I write on, particle board, with no pretense to oak. Oak's sad cousin. And the craftsman-style light fixtures, triangles, right angles, dreamed up in the minds of geometers. What does geometry illuminate? I'm the sad cousin of a mind. The arts and craftsmen were reacting against Victorian furbelows, the ornamented empire, or as they might have said, civilization. Still, this room is only the sad cousin of nature. It has its smoke alarm, its water cooler, its green exit sign, a threat, not an invitation, its lectern, its monumental fireplace of unpolished granite, its coffee maker. Out the west-facing window, I can see, flat and small as a playing card, the platinum slice of river, and beyond, the wiry cliffs of the Palisades. The sun is setting, pronounces Henry Hudson, eternally facing west bobbling on the deck of the Havamen. The Havamen is um, Henry Hudson's ship. Um, in English, it's the half moon. So thank you for reading that, Henry Hudson, Kathleen Ossip reading Henry Hudson. And um, the passage of time in between the starting it and the finishing it, can you say a little bit more about, about that, what you brought to it when you picked it back up? Well, I know that Henry Hudson wasn't in the original because I was just writing what I saw right. at that point. So he made an appearance later on. So I'm so glad that I waited to waited to finalize it because I think he belongs in that poem. And also, like all of the what I had written originally was pure description. There was no kind of commentary. Um, or sh even shaping, just pure description. And so the kind of judgment or um, slant 
or perspective about the um I don't know, empire exploration, the men who who were responsible for that. Um that all came later because I yeah, I I at the time I thought of it as just a descriptive exercise. Hmm. The sad cousins. <laughs> the sad cousins later. Yeah. And the the sad cousin of the particle board table. What an amazing description. <laughs> what an amazingly like and, and again it, it comes back, and I don't know if you meant this, but it's the spending more time with the material, with our objects, which the things that were around us, the things in our room, which we might like to have enough to spend a couple hours there, but not like months. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. Rooms became very important during the pandemic. Let me ask you about the exit sign. It, it's in readers did, or listeners didn't know this, but when you read this, you'll see it's in it's in parentheses. It's an embedded thought in here. You're talking about the smoke alarm. It's water cooler. The green it's green exit sign in parentheses. You write a threat, not an invitation. How did that come to you? I think I think because the green exit. Those those lit exit signs that you see in public places and theaters are there in case of emergency, right? Right. But, um, so I felt that its presence was kind of an implicit threat because it was a reminder of what could what might happen um, that we would have to you know vacate the premises. Mm. It's it's another one of these things that I think if I read this with you, talked about it with you in nineteen in twenty nineteen, I would think of it differently. Oh yeah. Yeah. Going and coming, warning signs, what a door means. They just have a different they just have a different meaning. And then all of the iconography of of emergency, as you point out here. I'm really, I studied disaster, so I'm really attentive to things like where smoke alarms are and where exit signs mm -hmm. are. But I'd never thought about it quite that way, but it conjures images of hospitals and and um, things that we saw, obviously, but see them differently in this time. Yes, absolutely. I wanted to, um, let's keep going if you don't mind. Are you okay? I, I don't want to. Okay. The, um, Scott, you don't understand when you invite a poet to read their work, they're always fine with it. <laughs> okay. Well, but there's a certain, yeah. Okay. I appreciate that. It, it, reading them and then talking about them is, is a tall ask. And so I appreciate your generosity with it. I, um, I wanted to ask you about interactions with other poets in this time mm -hmm. and who you've been swapping ideas and, and poems with and what that, what form that takes. Yeah, well, it's so necessary. And I've been used to, I mean, there's nothing like I like more than sitting around a table at a cafe or a bar with a bunch of poets and just chatting. That's one of my favorite activities. Um, and of course, that was taken away abruptly. Um, and so I had to resort to Zoom. And because I was generating so much work, um, because I was just sitting around um, outside of my teaching, also on Zoom for a while, um, I really didn't have that much to do. And so I sat around and wrote and then wanted to connect with other poets. So my friend Christina and I, arranged to have a weekly Zoom where we would swap uh, poems every week and kind of give each other our responses to the work and ideas that we had about maybe changing it or expanding it. Um, and it was so useful for me. Honestly, I had gotten past the point, I thought, where I wanted to, where I needed to get 
feedback on my individual poems. I kind of was okay just making my own decisions about them. But this was a way to stay connected to poetry, to read someone else's work deeply, and to just have conversations about poetry, which is are so which are so important to me. So I'm trying to here's one and at this time, I think I've mentioned, well, the, the poems are coming out in a book called Little Poems. And they are pretty, all of these poems that I wrote at this time are pretty little. None are, none are much more than half a page. Um, and these couple that I'm going to read now um, are very little, I would say. So here is Places I Have Lived. Only the just sleep the sleep of the just. Only the unjust know how to punish. Someone's broken heart lives in the ruined barn in Ohio, North America, on planet Earth. The unjust break my heart, the day takes breath. How will I ever say what I want to say? And this is lines written while crying. I did a lot of crying during the pandemic. Thoughts, don't listen to them. These influences out of all available influences, too scant to feed cheer, too cheerless for belief. So watch me attack and dethrone God no longer pretending this or that central question. Pileated woodpecker, two crinkled women, a dying mall emerge into my godless world, original and beautiful, beautiful and surprising. But in terms of weather, what is wild that doesn't impossibly get old? Thank you for sharing those. Okay. And I wanted to just ask one thing about um, those interactions. You talked about the joy of being in a cafe with other writers. And now you're in Zoom with other writers. How is it different? And, and I ask that particularly with ways that nonverbal communication works mm -hmm. with artists sharing work. I mean, there's the formal critique. I, I like what you did here with this image. And the, but then there's also just how people sit when they listen or how they move forward or if they're smiling or if they're distracted or checking their phone. I hope your friends don't, I'm sure your friends don't do that. But, you know, so many forms of communication are lost by, in, in Zoom. I guess we, we gain others because we can be at a greater distance. But I, I'm curious how those, how the, how the writers room, how the salon changes when you try to bring it up into the digital boxes? Well, I mean, I guess it's a very personal thing, but I didn't find Zoom to be that um, much of a diminishment. Even in teaching, I know that obviously you do have the nuances of communication that get lost in teaching. But on the other hand, you're right up in each other's faces in a way that you're not when you're in a classroom um, or even at a cafe table. So I I don't know. I didn't find it to be that much diminished. And um, it in some ways there was there's there was very little distraction on these Zoom calls when I was talking with my friend, um, because like we set aside the time, we're in our um, in our spaces. Neither of us has young kids, so we're not worried about being interrupted in that way. And we're just focusing on the poem. And there's nothing ambient going on the way there would be in a cafe or a bar. So, mm. it, in in some ways, the the um, communications were even more intense, and I think the focus was heightened. Mm. Uh, we have a, a few minutes left in our conversation today with Kathleen Ossip. We're talking about her new poetry uh, written in the time 
of COVID. And uh, I think we have time for uh, one more reading, if you can spare a few more minutes. But I, I wanted to ask you um, before that, you know, for people who are listening to this or reading your work and would like to try to get started, or as you did with Henry Hudson, they have some notes taken and they want to bring them out and do something with them. You know, people started a lot of things during the pandemic, baking bread uh, yeah. uh, or, you know, those kinds of like early kind of lockdown things. And, and I know some that's become a cliche. Some people stuck with those things. Uh, and poetry could be one of those for some. I do you have so. a a starter exercise or something that that you can offer to people, or even if it's not that, just some some direction, some breadcrumb to offer them if they want to get started. Yeah, I think well, two things spring to mind. One is I think that room observation exercise is great if you can sit in a room and and notice as many things as possible and give yourself enough time so that you you're really going to be pushed to notice beyond the apparent. Um, that's a great place to start. And I think all writing should start from free writing, meaning that you just write down whatever comes into your mind. You don't worry about whether it sounds good or even whether it's true. You just let yourself write and let your unconscious mind take over. And then you can go back and Find the moments in what you've written that appeal to you for whatever reason, because they sound very true or profound or because they just sound good. They're nice mouthfuls of language um, or you think there's a striking image. And then just go through your notes and circle those moments and, and start out by putting together those moments in a way. I always tell my students this, make something that is pleasing to you. Mm-hmm. Um, that that is the main thing as as in any kind of creative activity you have to make something that's pleasing for you and because you are a unique mind and consciousness and sensibility you'll make something that no one else could have made um another thought that i have is to write from your obsessions i sometimes think all good poems come from the poet's obsessions and it doesn't have to be any kind of elevated um, obsession. It can be just, you know, maybe a kind of music or a TV show or a podcast. Mm. And just write write what is interesting to you about that obsession. And usually when we're obsessed with something, we know all kinds of interesting and unusual facts about it. And, And put all of that, all of that sort of mental energy that has become an obsession into your poem. And again, start by free writing and then go back and find the moments of the highest energy, the the things that seem most pleasing to you. Is writing from that obsession is that's because it's a, it's a portal into a way of thinking where people have observed so much detail that they want to create new forms of language, bring new words to it. Is that the, the, the key to that? I think that's part of it. And I also think that when you're obsessed with something, it means that you're extremely interested in it and want to spend time thinking about it. And that's going to commute that energy and interest is going to communicate itself in what you've written. So there's one more theme I wanted to get to and, and um, we'll close on this perhaps is uh, has to do with with science, I guess, with with truth and false, true and false, truth and falsity, and you have a poem. It's a theme that runs through some of the other ones, but uh, this poem, the facts. Yeah, I love this one, and I want. I wonder if you'll read it, and then we can chat a bit about it. Sure. The facts. The facts sit in an ordinary room. They resemble people, stubborn and without imagination. The facts begin to chatter. Better days coming, better days coming. They arrange themselves in the shape of a lie. They're cheating. They only work in the past tense. Handle them. They have an activating feel. They fake objectivity. They decide unanimously. 
For example, what do you call that white pointed cylinder generated by the roof on freezing days? Hang ice, I say? Facts say wrong. The facts await their moment. In my early years, I didn't think meadows came at a cost. There are no turnstiles or box office offices at the edges of a meadow. The facts told me different, and I resented them. The facts dispose like people. They can mute us, and we can mute them. That's Kathleen Ossip reading the facts uh, from a new book of poems to be coming out this September, Little Poems. And that will that one be in the in the collection, Kathleen? Yes, it will. Okay, so you have a troubled relationship with the facts here. <laughs> and I don't mean that in a disparaging way, the way some people might say that you're grappling with them. Are there facts during the pandemic you tried to mute? I think what I tried to mute was, or wanted to mute, I don't think it was really an option, was the kind of lack of any consensus about what facts were. Mm. That that um, was pretty destabilizing and disturbing. I think about the uh, press conferences early in the pandemic, not only the United States, it's not the only country that had these, but the, the theater that emerged out of Donald Trump standing next to Deborah Burks or standing next to Tony Fauci. And that's what's playing out there is a, a, to me, a very uncomfortable sort of choice that was almost set up. Like you can listen to this guy and choose his facts, or you can listen to this other guy and you can choose his facts as if they're standing at the lectern and therefore their facts are both similar and equally valid. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the, the idea that facts can arrange themselves in the shape of a lie. I think we saw a lot of evidence of that um, during that time on our screens. I think that's um, maybe one of the ways that art, to, we've talked a lot about art in this time as conveying deep thoughts and capturing emotional landscapes, which are unique to this time. But poetry is good for anger too. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, I mentioned, I mean, I don't consider this a very angry poem. I have much angrier poems that aren't in this particular grouping, but. Um, I should read those because I got angry when I read this, but in the in a good way, in the right way. But this right. brought this brought something for me. Oh, I'm happy because we all need outlets for our ang like safe and healthy outlets for our anger. Um, I, I have a lot of poems that are much more overtly angry in what they perform. I feel like the tone of this is not that angry. But um, yeah, I think that we need, we need safe, sane ways to be angry because there's certainly a lot to be angry about. Did you watch Amanda Gorman read yeah. her poetry at Biden's inaugural? What did you think about that? Poetry is having a moment right now, I think. I mean, people always say that. For me, of course, I never thought it went anywhere. Right. Yeah, <laughs> but it's, it's more... <laughs> It's more in the media um, than it used to be. And social media, if you're, you know, if you follow the right people on Instagram, there are a lot of Instagram poets or, or just a lot of poets, period, who um, young people are, um, are following and interested in. And Amanda Gorman is, is um, one of the poets that young people are interested in, which is hooray for that. In fact, I read. I read a study right before the pandemic that um, readership in general has gone down, but readership of poetry has gone up in mm. the past few years, which makes me feel great. So happy for that. Um, Amanda's performance at the inauguration was inspiring. Um, I, 
can't imagine the pressure of having to write a poem for that event, for that occasion. Oh my goodness. And I, <clears throat> I think she came, <clears throat> came through with flying colors. And I think anyone who watched her that day will never forget that poem. So writing after, I'm not gonna, after the pandemic, I don't even like that phrase because I think for people who think about it, it will never be gone. But in the next you know, period of time through the spring and summer when the pandemic is becomes whatever it is and hopefully a lot less, um, are you worried you're going to lose some focus somehow? Or are you just going to, you're going to bring in new ideas, certainly, but the the landscape is changing. It will change. It will. Um, and that's good. I'm fine with it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I am fine with a more open life. If, if we're lucky enough to have that happen, I will be delighted. And I'm sure my poems will survive in some other form. I'm excited about that. Just want to remind folks you've been listening to COVID calls and you can usually catch COVID calls live at 7 p.m. Eastern time. Although in this next month, we'll be having COVID calls sometimes multiple times a day as we move towards the culmination of the project, March 16th. I want to thank my guest today, Kathleen Ossip, not only for talking about your work, but also for reading it, which is really wonderful opportunity uh, to share that time with you. And uh, we'll be looking for these poems collected uh, coming out a little bit later this year in a book called Little Poems. And then people can also read your 2021 book, July, and your other works of poetry as well. Kathleen Ossip, thank you so much for taking this time today. Thank you for inviting me, Scott. It's been a pleasure. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you next time on COVID Calls.